we're going to continue in Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2. We finished up chapter 1 last week. I think it was the longest sermon ever. Sorry about that. Uh, especially the Barneys. Yeah, I already apologized to the Barneys. I was like, hey, I know you had the kids for like an hour and five minutes. That's ridiculous. Uh, sorry. Uh, there was a lot to cover because I spent like 30 minutes just talking about intro stuff, and then we actually looked at the verses. So there's not going to be quite as much of that this week. We're just going to jump right into the verses. Um, so we're going to read 1 through 16. So it's a pretty good chunk this morning, um, but it kind of has a lot, a lot of the same ideas. It's, it's, not, it's not super varied, so it should be okay. We should be able to get through this in less than an hour and five minutes. Probably. Um, so let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as, did from the Jew, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. We're going to stop there. Um, so, most of this is filled with kind of a defense of Paul's ministry. Uh, the first about 12 verses or so. Paul is mostly just talking about the, the character of his ministry to them, the nature of it. And it's, it's interesting because, to our knowledge, there's nobody in the church that's just actively attacking him or kind of discrediting him. Unlike Corinthians. Corinthians, we, we referenced them last week as being kind of the, the, the church that's having some trouble. Uh, in, the, in the book of Corinthians, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there's, there's sections where Paul is defending himself against specific critics inside of the church. 
where they are questioning his apostleship, questioning his message, and all sorts of things, and he calls them out specifically, and he wants to kind of present an apologetic, like he wants to prevent a defense, present a defense of himself, and that's not exactly what's going on here. It's more just generally his, his heart in the ministry that he had in Thessalonica. And the common thought is that he's saying all these things because he's not with them anymore, and he had to leave abruptly. Uh, we talked about this last week, kind of how Paul ended up in Thessalonica and, and what happened when he was there. If you remember, um, they came into town. He was on his second missionary journey with Silas, with Timothy. They were traveling city to city, presenting the gospel of Christ. They would go into the synagogue. They would preach to the Gentiles. And they would just let them know what Christ has done, how he has fulfilled the Old Testament, uh, and that he's, he's brought salvation and his kingdom has come. And so they'd go from town to town. And, and in Thessalonica, they were teaching in the synagogue, and they eventually get kicked out. The Jews do not appreciate Paul being there. They run him out of town. Uh, and not only that, we didn't really read this, but not only did they run him out of town, they follow him to the next town, and they run him out of that town, too. Like, they're not happy about uh, Paul's presence in their community. So Paul had to leave abruptly. It says they, they left in the middle of the night. They, charges were brought against them, but rather than sitting before the court and doing that whole thing again, they left in the middle of the night. So if you're the church, and this guy who you had never heard of before just wanders into town and presents the gospel to you, this message of Christ, and he's there for a little while, but then the government gets in an uproar, and he leaves in the middle of the night. What kind of thoughts are you going to be struggling with? Even if, even if you believed everything that he was saying, it's kind of odd that this guy would just come out of nowhere and then leave in the middle of the night. And so the thought is that perhaps they're, they're questioning, or maybe he's anticipating that they are questioning his heart or the validity of his message or something like that because they didn't get a whole lot of exposure with him. So he says right off the bat, these first 12 verses are really just kind of outlining the nature of his ministry and his, his continued heart towards them. And he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Um, I read that initially as... Um, as unfruitful. It wasn't unfruitful. That might not be the best way to read that word vain. Does anybody have a different word? I've got ESV. I don't know. We all got the ESV. All right. That's, that's cool. That'll help sometimes. Um, well, you can render this word a couple of different ways. And I think one of them is like empty or maybe a failure. It was not a failure. Uh, it was not. I'm trying to think of the other one. I think empty captures it best. Useless. That might be another one. Um, the idea here is that there is this sense that it wasn't without fruit. But it makes a little bit more sense when you read the following sentences to read this as though they didn't come selfishly. Like, when we think of vain, maybe, it's, maybe it might be better to think of it as, like, vanity. They didn't come in this selfish kind of vanity to puff up themselves. You've got this guy traveling around, talking to a bunch of people, trying to spread his message, trying to get people to convert to hit what he has to say. 
And so when you're thinking about this guy who just kind of comes out of nowhere and then leaves in the middle of the night, you're thinking, is this, is this guy legit? But what he's saying is we did not come out of this kind of selfish vanity just to kind of puff ourselves up because we're traveling salespeople or something like that. That was not the idea. Um, he says, we didn't come to you in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare with you, uh, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst, midst of much conflict. Um, it makes most sense to read it as though they didn't come in vain when you read that next sentence because he's saying because there, we, there's nothing, there's no personal profit in this. We had just gotten beat up in Philippi, and we came over here. And you would think that if we were coming here out of a sense of you know, pride to establish some new philosophy or something like that, then we would be really depressed. We would be really uh, discouraged that we would be um, hurt because we had just gotten beat up naked in public in front of the Philippians and then thrown in jail. And then we come down here. But he says, we, we presented this gospel to you with boldness, with confidence. And the reason that he's able to say we're able to, we're able to have that kind of attitude, to have that approach, is because this isn't about us. It's not about us puffing up ourselves. It's about God. This isn't, this isn't of us. And that's what he says in verse 3 there. He says, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he's just trying to further validate. Like we're not, I was not here, again, as a traveling salesperson trying to pitch something to you so that you would buy it so that I would be benefited by it. He's saying, we, we came as people who were appointed by God and with a message that was from God. They said, he said, we've been approved by God. That means that they didn't like, appoint themselves to this ministry. They didn't decide, oh, you know what would be a great idea? If we became these, these worldwide or globally known teachers that were presenting this new kind of interesting gospel that everybody could latch on to, and then we'd make a name for ourselves, sell a lot of books, go on tours and speak and do all this sort of thing. Like they didn't, they didn't come up with this idea on their own. They were approved by God. And, and the message that they brought to them, it says he doesn't have error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. I find that... And I didn't anticipate this, reading Thessalonians. It seems like you get a lot of Paul's heart and a lot of Paul's approach as a pastor when you read these first couple of chapters where he's describing his ministry. And it, it kind of makes sense for me, and mostly because I'm preaching at this point and I'm, I'm responsible for, for leading this church, that I, I, I automatically contrast. Okay, what's, what's Paul's approach versus what we see in other places? Versus what I see in myself. So when he says, we're not, we're not bringing you an appeal that comes from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. What he's saying is, we're not padding out this message to try to make it sound good to you. 
we're not, we're not trying to draw a crowd. And I think that you see that in, a, in some pastors, um, guys that we would, we would claim to be other, I guess. People who have kind of, and I always, I feel bad because I always think of two names. And, and I think of guys like Joel Osteen. We think of guys like uh, Rob Bell who have, who have taken out some of the more offensive parts of the gospel to make it more appealing. And they've grown this huge crowd. Like this, some of the biggest churches in the U.S. Uh, were pastored by these people, were, were led by these people. Because if you just kind of take away the parts that are offensive, and if you, if you make it sound good, what he's talking about, any attempt to deceive, to kind of present this as something else that's, that's easy to swallow, then, then they could draw a crowd. But he's saying, we didn't do that. We intentionally left it just as it is, because this isn't our message. It's, it's the message of the gospel, the message of Christ. And yeah, it's offensive, but, but we're not going to distort that. So he's, and he has this full confidence. It takes, it takes a lot of confidence, I think, just standing up here, you know, teaching people to say, my message had no error in it. That's, you, you get a lot of that from Paul, where he's like, imitate me. My message had no error. I am clear in my conscience in everything that I've done up to this day. Like he makes these kinds of claims and you're like, geez, Paul. Uh, self-righteous much? Uh, he's not, we've talked about this before, he's not boasting in himself when he makes these sorts of claims, when he says, my message is without error. He's, he's boasting in Christ and saying that this message of Christ is, is blameless. It's without reproach. It's, it's perfect in what it is, in its essence. And, and he has absolute confidence in it, not as something that he created, but as something that was delivered to him by God. And so he can say, this is perfect. Um, and we don't, we don't think about um, this, and I, I, this just kind of came to mind. We think about verses like uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that talk about uh, all scripture being God-breathed and that sort of thing. Um, as being kind of key verses for understanding that the Bible sees itself as being without error. But I think that this is kind of equally valid. Paul is saying, my ministry, my message was without error. And for him to say that, that's a big claim. He's saying that his, his message, all these things that we read about in all these different letters, he's, he's saying that these are from God and therefore without error. And that's his, that's his take on it. So he's, he's, he's building this case, multiple things. So he, they didn't come to pitch something that they had come up with. They didn't deceive them or pad the message to try to make it digestible for them. They didn't appoint themselves to this role. And he says, we never came, in verse 5, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So they, they weren't there to try to get something from the church. Uh, we didn't talk about this much in the intro, but this was kind of a wealthier area. Um, it was a port town on a very big uh, trade route through uh, kind of the top of the area in Greece. So 
there were people here who were wealthy business people. There were people who were well off. And you can assume that if he's preaching to these, these learned people, these Gentiles, that these are, some of the people in this crowd could help financially, you would think. But what he's saying here is, when I came to build a church, I didn't come to raise money for myself. I didn't come to get at your wallets. And, and greed played no role in this. Which is interesting when in verse 6, when you read a little bit further, he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He's saying that given my position, the fact that Christ appointed me as an apostle, and, and the unique kind of status that is gained by that, he could have abused that. For the people that, that bought that message, he could have set himself up as like, this might be dangerous, kind of like a pope, where he's like, okay, this is me and God, and this is all you guys. And, and to get at God, I, I'm going to need something from you. I'm going uh, to need your indulgences. I'm going to need your, your money. I'm going to need all this stuff. Man, I'm just like attacking everybody, and I had no intention of doing that this morning. Um, sorry. <laughs> or not. Um, so he, he's saying, I, I could have used that status, that kind of unique experience, saying that you guys need to listen to me because have any of you met Jesus who was talking to you from heaven and told you to do all these things? No, didn't think so? Okay, well, here's the way we're going to do things. He could have had that kind of attitude. He could have sought glory from people. In other words, he could have used that kind of unique status to try to puff himself up to try to manipulate other people, to, to make his own little ministerial empire. But he didn't do that. That wasn't the point of what he was there to do. He says in verse 7, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is, this is interesting. Uh, it's interesting to me particularly because he doesn't just say mother. He says nursing mother. It's like, what are you saying about our relationship, Paul? <laughs> I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, but the, the idea here is that he's, he's taking these people as though they are his children. They're, they're not just children. They're young children. They're dependent on him. And, and this attitude that he has towards them is that it's, it's one of, of just kind of like this unconditional love for them that would seek to do anything for them, that would lay down his life for them. And you see that in verse 8 where he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. And I feel like that kind, of con that kind of continues this idea of being this mother with this child. That they're going to empty themselves out. Um, having three, almost four kids in our house running around at this point. I feel like I can, I can appreciate this, this metaphor, this, this comparison. Because it takes, it takes a lot to, 
to be the mother of a small, of a baby. And, and I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't just build this in, by the way, because this is Mother's Day. I was just like, hey, that kind of works. Thanks. Um, <laughs> it's, it's here. It takes a lot to, to be the mother of a child or to be the father of a child. He makes the father comparison here in a second. You, you really do have to pour yourself out and, and kind of empty yourself of your own freedoms. And, and I can say firsthand that this, this is, not as a mother, but as a father, this is a difficult thing. Um, it's not, it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people, uh, me included. It, it takes sacrifice. And it, it takes a lot of endurance. Uh, it takes heart. It takes a lot of heart to be able to do this. And I think that that's, I think that there's some understanding that that's true in our culture, and that's why so many people flee from motherhood or fatherhood, because they see this as being something that is serious, that takes a lot out of you. It's going to demand your life. And people see that, and they, they, they cower from that, and, and they run away from it. But he's saying that here, he's exactly the opposite. He, he had affection for them that didn't seek his own benefit. If you have kids or if you've been around kids, and you, that you, then you know that there's not a whole lot of instant gratification when you're taking care of kids. Those moments are few and far between. When you're taking care of little babies. At least maybe that's my fatherly perspective. <laughs> it's like, I know that the long term, this is going to be a great thing. But right now, man, it is hard. His, his perspective is long term. And, and he's willing to pour himself out for. And that is noteworthy. That is noteworthy for us who who teach for us who lead inside of church or would seek those things to see this kind of attitude from him that says, this isn't about me, this is about Christ, and, and it's not about my own edification, it's not about my own gratification, it's about me emptying myself for the sake of these disciples, for the sake of these children in the gospel. He says also in verse 9 that... Uh, sorry, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what happened is Paul had a trade, and we're not quite sure where he got this. Maybe he just like his dad was, uh, was a tradesman or something like that, not sure. But he was able to do things other than teach in the synagogue or in the churches. He did things other than just being an apostle. So when he got to this church, as an, as an evidence, as a way of saying, I am not interested in your money, what he did was he went and worked when he wasn't doing ministry so that he could support himself, so that he didn't have to come into town and say, believe this message, now pay me some money. Which would be really awkward. Um, instead... He, even though he might have that right as an apostle, he could say, 
I'm working. I'm doing the work of ministry under Christ for the gospel. I have a right to ask you to help me out here. And he does. He doesn't utilize that right. And instead, he says that we labored night and day so that they would not be a burden to the church. So you've got this idea that maybe they're, they're doing work in the daytime and they're ministering at night or vice versa, but their whole day, every hour of every day is filled up with either ministry or their own work to try to support their ministry. Again, this is this idea of emptying themselves out. They don't have anything left. They're not saying, well, I just don't have time to do all this ministry at once. They're saying, how can I move things around? How can I be putting in the hours to support myself to do this ministry? And I think that for us, we're, we're oftentimes trying to figure out how, ways that we can make life easier on us. And we often use that as kind of our, our priority and say, well, I can't really do that this week or ever because I'm busy with this all the time. That wasn't, that wasn't his state at all. That wasn't his, his situation. He emptied himself out day in, day night, uh, day in, day out, night and day, working, doing labor. And um, I, must, I must have read this in another translation. Because one of the words in here, like literally, it means like hard labor. When they're, when they're saying labor and toil, uh, that is the idea that they're not just like, they're, n- they're not doing easy work. They're doing hard labor that is exhausting them so that they can do this. And he says, you were, in verse 10, you are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our... Blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So again, uh, somebody in one of the commentaries had talked about how uh, they, they examined the idea of maybe this was talking about roles in the household. And to some extent, yeah, he's, he's evoking those roles, but I don't think that this is necessarily a firm statement of of saying what dads are supposed to do absolutely all the time and what moms are supposed to do. Um, But because he's owning both of these things, he's saying, like a mother, I did this. Like a father, I did this. But he's given you another example of kind of the father pouring himself out. Rather than just letting his kids run around and do whatever they want to and become whatever kind of people they want to, he's steering them. And this takes a lot of work. This takes a lot of work. It's easy to just say, you know what, I worked real hard today, um, and, and I'm just worn out, so kids, you go do whatever you want to, I'm done for today. Uh, that is the temptation, like, every day when you're a dad, is to say, Kid, you guys go play for a mo- minute, and I'm just going to chill. But what he's saying is he didn't let them just run and do whatever they want, want to. He steered them in the right direction. He exhorted them. He encouraged them, charged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And that, that is something that is like an everyday sort of thing. You can't, you shouldn't let up on that. And, and if, me, I can speak about this one a little bit more personally. This, this is hard. It's hard to not take a break 
but if you do, and if you kind of let your kids do whatever, then you're potentially allowing them to grow into people that do not value the gospel, don't value this kind of hard work, don't value uh, the word of God. And, and so he's saying another way of emptying himself out is just this sort of thing, writing these letters, staying in contact with them, making sure that everything is okay, that they're maturing the way that they need to. Because he loves them with this fatherly kind of love that seeks to, to challenge them, that seeks to cause them to mature. In verse... 13. So he kind of changes tone a little bit at this point in time where he's saying, okay, so you, you see our heart in this. You see that this is not about us and that this is not about getting things. It's about the gospel. It's about what God has done. It's about building you up, emptying ourselves out for your sake. And he's built that kind of argument. And he says in verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So I think that it's interesting that now twice in Thessalonians, just in the first two chapters here, he's talked about imitating Christ, accepting this message and imitating Christ, and he's linked that very closely with this idea of affliction or suffering. Uh, back in chapter 1, I think it's verse 6, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. And then over here he's saying again, you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He's talking about this affliction that, that they are happily owning up to because they receive this word. Not, and and it, it's odd because it seems like they kind of already get this. He's presenting this defense of, of his ministry and what he said and what he's done. But he's already saying, when you heard this, you received this as the word of God. So it's almost like, why, why did you need to go into all the detail if they had already received it as the word of God? I think that he's encouraging them through all of this just to say his heart is still there. He's still with them. And he says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out to death and displease God and oppose all mankind. Um, so the idea is here that, again, they are not alone in this. Again, he's calling them brothers here. He knows that they're suffering. He knows that they're afflicted. He knows that they've had to lay things down to accept this gospel. But he's saying that in doing this, you've become imitators of Christ. You've become imitators of us. You've become brothers in this body of Christ. And... This suffering that you are experiencing is not specific to you. It's something that we're, we're all experiencing. He says that the, the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, they're experiencing the same thing, but from the Jews who hate them. You don't have the Jews lording over you. Instead, you Gentiles are now receiving persecution from the rest of the world, from the other Gentiles. But he goes on to make this case against the Jews and says you suffered 
the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Again, talking about the Jews. Killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out, they displeased God, they opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, there's this idea that That God has this appointed plan. Again, the kind of eschatology, the end times kind of perspective that Paul has in this whole thing is, is throughout Thessalonians. And he's bringing it to bear here again when he's talking to them about this suffering, this affliction. And he's saying that when he, when he makes mention of so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, he's kind of referencing this idea that God has this appointed plan. And at his appointed time, which none of us know, but he knows, when, when the time has come, essentially is what he's saying, when the measure of their sins has been reached, he is going to bring wrath upon them. And he's talking about the Jews in particular. He says, wrath has come upon them at last. And that's interesting because we know that even at, this, at the point that he's speaking and even now, the, the, the final wrath of God against sinners has not come. So there's a little bit of confusion as to what he might mean by this sort of thing. And he could be meaning that, that the Jews are beginning to now see the disintegration of their nation. Because the Romans are now conquering them. They're coming in 20 years from now. Their temple's going to be destroyed. They're going to be scattered. They're not going to be a nation anymore. Christ talks about this. Your house is left desolate to you. Um, and now it's come to the Gentiles. He might be talking about that. Um, or he might just be referencing this fact that Christ has come. And now his kingdom is inaugurated. It's, it's begun. And Christ is going to come in, in wrath, in judgment against sin. He says all these sorts of things. It seems odd to kind of put that at the end of all these other things that he's talked about. Um, but he says all of that to, to, again, encourage them. And, and to let them know that even though they are suffering these things, even though Paul had to run away because these guys were going to put him in prison again, even though they seem to be left alone by themselves, afraid, believing in Christ, but afflicted, even though all those horrible things are happening, God has got this in his hand, and he's got a plan for this, and he knows what's going to happen. He's got a time in mind. So as to, as always, to fill up the measure. Like, he's got a specific measurement where he's going to say, all right, the time has come. And when it does, he's going to vindicate. Christ is going to come and, and prove that this message was true. And he's trying to, again, encourage them with this message and to let them know that they can have faith in these things. It's difficult in these sorts of, of passages, again, for me, to try to pull out areas for application for exhortation because to me it always seems kind of artificial when somebody tries to force an application out of something that's like he's more just kind of talking to him. Um, I, I, pref I said this last week, I kind of prefer the moments when they just say, do this. Because then you can obviously say, yeah, obviously they're saying do this. But since we've kind of chosen, we've picked our poison here and we've chosen to do this by segments by segments, um, you get into these kind of areas where you say, okay, that's what he's saying. 
do we do with that? And the one thing that I think that sticks out to me the most here is just kind of the selflessness that you see in Paul's presentation of the gospel. So if we're going to look at this and say, yeah, okay, I, I get it, but now what does that mean for me? If we're going to try to figure out what, what to take away from this, I think that the concept of this selflessness in presenting the gospel and laying down your life for the gospel is noteworthy. And it's something that we ought to point to as, as kind of a, a one measuring rod for where we are with regard to the gospel. I think that you could ask a couple of questions. First of all, what is your motivation, if you have any motivation? What is your motivation in believing in the gospel? What is your motivation in, in coming to church, in, in living this life, in identifying as a Christian? What's your motivation in that? Because he's kind of already ruled out a lot of things here when he's talking about the kind of ministry that he has as a Christian. He's saying, this was not for my own personal gain. He's saying that this required him to empty himself out for others. There's some people who want to present the gospel as kind of a key for, for obtaining lots of things. Like if you, if you believe the gospel, then you're going to get lots of things from God. And, and that's their primary kind of method for presenting the gospel of Christ. And some even take it just to the extreme and say that if you believe hard enough, if you have enough faith, if, if, if you are sold out, then God's going to bless you with goods, material goods. You're going to have health. You're going to have uh, things. God is going to give you everything you need. You're never going to be without anything. You're never going to have a want that is unmet. You want a nice house? If you just believe hard enough, you'll get a nice house. You want a nice car? Same thing. Nice job? You want uh, to be free from sickness and illness? If you just believe hard enough, you could have all of these things. That seems particularly interesting. If you go back here... And, and you interpret what Paul is saying here. But let's go back and look at verse 1 here where he's saying, For you yourselves, brothers, know that our coming to you was not in vain. There is a sense in which he's saying that this was not a fruitless endeavor. It was not fruitless. It was not without um, benefit that we came to you. But his measuring rod is not the same as most of us. Because he's saying... This is a success. It's not in vain. It's a success that we came to you. But how would you reconcile this kind of idea that says, well, if you believe hard enough, then God will give you money and he'll give you nice things and he'll give you health and all these sorts of things. If you believe that, how do you reconcile that with Paul saying, it wasn't in vain that we came to you. It wasn't in vain that we went to Philippi and preached the gospel and got beaten up, stripped naked, humiliated in front of an entire town and thrown in prison. Or, or that we came to you and they ran us out of town again and then chased us into Berea and ran us out of town again. How do you, how do you hold to that kind, of, that kind of ideology that says, if I believe God, he's going to give me whatever I want. And then you see Paul and his exhortation, his example saying, it wasn't in vain that we came to you, even though we suffered, even though we worked night and day and wore ourselves out 
And even though we had nothing left, we gave you everything we had. It wasn't about us. It was about presenting Christ and emptying ourselves. I don't know how you resolve those two things. And so I think that just in seeing that kind of example, seeing Paul's example, when he, when he commends his ministry and we look at ourselves and say, what about us? What, what about our Christianity looks anything like Paul's? I think that if, you're, if you look at yourself and you say, man, I've, I've, I've been in this primarily for me, then you need to rethink what, what the purpose of this gospel is. It's not about temporary pleasures. It's not about right now feeling good. If, if you believe the gospel because by it you hope to get temporary pre- pleasures, wealth, whatever, then you don't need to believe it because the gospel is going to call you to lay those things down. It's going to call you to give things up. If you believe in the gospel and, and you want to preach the gospel because you want to be a people pleaser, you want to go out there and make everybody happy, you want to make everybody like you, then don't believe this gospel because it is an offense. It, it calls people out for what they are, sinners. It says you're broken. You are an utterly broken thing that can't fix itself. And that message is not super popular, as we see with Paul here, where he's going from town to town, getting run out of town. So if that's kind of, if you, if you think the gospel is just there so that you can please other people, or so that you can uh, get in with people, that's, that's not what it's there for. Or if you want power over others, like if you see these pastors and you say, listen, I can get up in front of a crowd, I can talk, I can... That guy's not doing anything special. He's just reading verses and talking about them. I could do that. I could learn how to read the Bible, and I could do that. And then I could, I could build this, this, a church for myself where people pay me, where I kind of have authority to do what I want to do. I can, I can build it the way I want to. It can be my clubhouse, and I can, I can rule over these people. Then you need to stop right there because what he's saying is not at all that kind of picture. He's emptying himself. He is not in it for his own gratification. He's not in it to lord over people. As a matter of fact, he, he's getting away from that really quick. He says, we, we haven't come up with this on our own. We're not talking about this with you because, because we like this message or because it built us up, but because it was because what God told us to say to you. And it's not, it's not for us. And so... Don't, don't believe the gospel if you're just in it because you think it's going to give you wealth right now or health right now. And don't believe in it if you think it's going to make you get a whole lot of friends and, friends and have people love you. And don't believe it if you think that you're, you're going to get some sort of authority from it, like you're just going to be able to lord over people. That's not the point of this. You believe it if you're looking for the truth of the word of God, the fact that Christ came and and called us out for what we are, sinners, broken people, and, and offered himself up as a savior to us, and, and gave himself up 
and, and is promising this future kingdom, not something right now, but something future that is going to be filled with, with his attributes, with who he is, filled with God and his perfect intent for the world, righteousness, justice, mercy, grace, joy, peace, love, those sorts of things eternally. Those are the things that we point to when, when we're looking at this gospel, when we preach this gospel. And I think that just kind of looking at this, one thing that, it, 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 that, made, that stood out to me that I'm not sure that has ever stood out to me, at least in this context before, is just when he's talking about imitating Christ and preaching in the midst of suffering, He's talking about putting on the mind of Christ. He talks about this elsewhere in Philippians 2. Where he's talking about putting on the mind of Christ when we accept this gospel. When we seek to tell it to other people. That would seek to do this sort of thing that Paul is doing. Emptying ourselves out. If you really put on the mind of Christ, then what you you realize is what, what you're doing is you're laying down your life to die, essentially. And, and you're, you're saying that I'm willing to empty this out, empty this vessel out of everything that it's got for the sake of other people, for the sake of this word, for the sake of this gospel. And, and to have the mind of Christ and to proclaim his message is to do so in the face of suffering. You have to be willing to reach out to people who not just didn't ask for the message, but also you have to be willing to reach out to people who hate you and to be willing to empty yourself out when when somebody's trying to kill you. You have to go to that kind of extent to really imitate Christ. And so that's why he's able to commend them when he says, you're imitating Christ, you're suffering for this message, but that's okay. Because in doing that, we are following in Christ's example. If Christ came and preached, we, I mean, you have to say Christ preached perfectly and he still uh, got everybody all riled up and mad at him. Uh, and, if, and if we look at his example, we look at Paul's example, then, then ourselves, I think that you have to kind of recognize the fact that This gospel calls you to lay things down. It calls you to empty yourself for the sake of Christ. Because we've been called by God. We've been given this message. And it's not something that we do for ourselves, but something that we do for the sake of Christ. So that, not so that we can get immediate pleasures, not so that things are going to be okay today and so that I'm not going to be hungry, I'm not going to be lonely anymore, but for these eternal kinds of fulfilling things that we know that Christ is going to come back and he's going to save us and he's going to give us life. Let's pray.